Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Business of sports never sleeps. Trillion-dollar business, maybe even more. Playoffs, NBA, NHL, NFL draft, starting, Masters over, Final Four over. But stuff in the boardroom never sleeps either. Transcendental issues, media, values, social media, globalization, facilities. The guy who's been reputed to be one of the best sports lawyers in the world, chairman of the Proskauer Law Firm, 14, 13 offices around the world. Joe Lasessi gives us some perspective, and even more perspective, the global editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. How are you? Hey, Rick, how are you doing? It was a great conversation. Uh, I think one of the, the most interesting things he said was about how the technology companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, are going to be big players when the sports rights contracts come up again. And that's going to be one of the big, big seismic shifts in the business. He has some perspective, obviously, about the television negotiations down the road, and we'll hear from Joe Lasessi. Proskauer, by the way, is a firm that uh, that begat David Stern, G- Gary Bettman. Uh, a lot of the commissioners started off as corporate lawyers. They were at this firm, and he is now the chairman of the board, not just in sports, but all of it. So his perspective transcends sports. The issues, though, are sports-related. A lot of them headline makers. Here's Joe Lasessi. So UFC, you brokered a $4 billion deal. You also had personal experience with the Dodgers at over $2 billion, the Clippers for over $2 billion. It's easy to say buy low, sell high. Is there a ceiling? Will there be a ceiling? Is there more of a ceiling with some leagues than others? Where is that now? Look, we think that franchise values are going to continue to increase uh, for several reasons. One, you have uh, a dramatic increase in the size of the global middle class. Uh, middle class incomes usually correlate with spending on sports and entertainment and that begins to drive a broader uh, and more diverse consumer base for these properties. Uh, U.S. properties continue to be the dominant sports properties uh, in the world. Obviously EPL, La Liga and others are also extremely important leagues. Uh, But as the consumer continues to invest in sports uh, in terms of tickets and television viewings, the value of franchises will continue to increase. You also have, as a result of a lot of macroeconomic forces, uh, more wealthy people than you've ever had. You continue to have very stable debt markets with relatively low interest rates, and the combination of all of those factors will continue to drive franchise values. And more wealthy sports fans, or more wealthy fans who want an asset that will continue to appreciate well beyond what the numbers say. Well, you know, many of the people that we've represented in the last decade since the Great Recession, uh, you know, it used to be before the Great Recession, people were perhaps interested in sports because they had a passion for the game. They wanted to do something that they regarded as fun. Many more of them now are looking at these sports teams as massive wealth diversifications. Uh, You know, if you invest in the stock market right now, you've got to worry that it could be down 30 or 40% tomorrow. But sports franchises, even in the 2008 recession, held their value very well. And I think a lot of wealthy people are seeing them as hedges. How much of it is the kind of Mona Lisa effect? There are only 30 of them in the NBA and 31 in the NHL, and there are a lot more people that want them than exist. Look, scarcity value is uh, always drives value. It doesn't matter whether it's classic cars, whether it's uh, pieces of art, whether it's sports franchises, oceanfront real estate. Scarcity is a dri- fundamental driver of value. Uh, and so uh, it'll be, that's one of the other fundamental underpinnings of values in sports. 
and the other one of the other fundamental underpinnings, obviously, is the uh, transcendental value of media rights. Uh, everybody says that was it, no more, and then it continues to increase. It's too simple to say where are the media rights going, but what about the the Snapchats, Facebooks, Googles? Are they going to be partners with the mainstream media entities for the next set of negotiations? Are they going to diversify and drive the values up? Is it a combination? Which yeah, well, look, I, we were just talking about this with uh, Commissioner Bittman uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, in 2021 and 2022, you have some of the most significant uh, sports rights deals uh, in the country coming due at once. Baseball, hockey, and football all have major packages that need to be renewed. And I think it's at that moment, usually about 18 months before they expire, that you see people engaging in a very robust way. And whether it's Facebook or Amazon or Google or Apple or one of the other Silicon Valley type companies, I think you will see one or more of them acquiring a significant package from one or more of those leagues. I think the network model will continue for the next decade after that in a harmony with those alternative providers, and then what happens in 2030, I think, will depend upon uh, audiences and technology. We may not be around in 2030. We're not going to ask each other. I'm going to be here. You <laughs> just got to live cleaner. <laughs> yeah, but that affects 2018, not necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. 2030. Is social media dealt with in a different way? It is in some ways today, but five, ten years from now, is all of that merged in one process, or is it diverse? You know, I think uh, what I've learned about social media is everything you think you know today changes yeah, in six yeah, weeks sure. as the young people move on to the next platform. I think it will get further integrated with the live telecast. Uh, I think sports will still try to navigate that heads down on the device versus yeah. the heads up on the game. Uh, but I think as uh, this generation uh, of millennials uh, takes hold as the principal uh, portion of the season ticket base and of the television viewer base, uh, they are accustomed to using social media on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and it's just going to get further integrated into the packages. Globalization, again, it's easy to take the word in one broad context, but one thing that's held, Fox, ESPN, they're transcending, but a lot of the other networks are trying, but they're not moving as fast as they could be globally. The Alibabas are staying there, but coming over as well. Is there a trend in the future now to consolidate and, and, and treat media rights more globally? Well, I think that's going to be a function of the Silicon Valley companies, yeah. the so-called fan companies coming into sports. Uh, their audience is global. Facebook's audience is not bordered by right. national uh, uh, borders. And so those companies, uh, I think, are beginning to see the value on a global basis of rights. Uh, I would expect them to ask for a very broad swath of rights when they uh, come to the leagues. The leagues may want to uh, gate them by geography in ways that they're not accustomed to, and that'll be part of the yeah. negotiation. But I th again, I go back to the earlier point. It's the global middle class that's growing, not yeah. just the American middle class that's growing. And I think sports rights are going to get disseminated throughout the globe. Use decouching as a segue to talk about facilities. Media, obviously, there's an innate tension no matter what people say. You watch, you're comfortable at home, you're less likely to go to a facility. Yet, facilities are the only place to watch live sports these days. Generally, where are facilities going and the notion of public private partnerships? If I hear another conversation about no more public money, it flies against the facts. But where do you think it's going broadly? Look, I think public-private partnerships are here to stay. Uh, they've been pronounced dead in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and so right. forth, and they're, and they're still here to stay. And if, if anything, if you look at a lot of the economic development that happens in cities outside of sports, they're still done with public-private partnerships. I think what will be interesting to see is what happens on the inside of those buildings. What's the size? Yeah. What's the scale? How much is technology uh, integrated? Because in your family room, every consumer electronics company in the world is investing. Right. Whether it's Google, Amazon, Sharp, uh, LG, they're all investing in your family room. 
only the leagues are really and teams are really in, investing in those stadiums and arenas. Uh, and so we're going to need a greater level of investment to make that live experience as vibrant as it can be. There's obviously a huge advantage in having the live sport right there. This generation of fans is going to expect more technological enhancements, and I think you'll see a greater uh, percentage of budgets for new arenas and stadiums being dedicated to that. So teams and leagues will control that process a little more than they are today, so there is some kind of mixture of process between the media rights around facilities and around the home experience and the facilities themselves? I think, I, I think it's going to be more people following best practices than any yeah. sort of necessity for further regulation. When people see whatever the next dynamic experience is in sports, they're all going to want to emulate it just as right. they emulated club seats and suites and a customer service experience that didn't previously exist at live sports events. I think you'll see that uh, with technology. Colleges, now, you know, you guys represent, represented, represent Learfield, you represent basically, well, you represent everybody everywhere, it's kind of hard to do this, but from a college perspective, future trends, broadly defined, do colleges look more like pro sports, football, baseball, 10 years from now, or do we have some litigation that tries to redefine where the Power Five conferences are relative to everything. Look, again, I think you got to talk about which piece of the business we're talking about. I think Larry Scott, Jim Delaney, and others just over the last seven or eight years have uh, brought a, an increasing amount of sophistication to the business side of college sports in terms of uh, a better exploitation of media rights. Uh, the presidents that serve on their boards are exercising more control over spending that money wisely for the benefit of both the athletes uh, and the overall missions of the schools. Uh, I think you're going to see an increase in that sophistication at the AD level. I think you can already see it at a number of schools. Athletic directors are coming from all walks of business. They're highly trained people. They're going to be running their programs in a very sophisticated way because they have enormous expense demands on them, not only the cost of feeding, housing, training the athletes and protecting them, uh, but meeting all of the expectations of the broader missions of the universities. Uh, I think the uh, court cases uh, will be going to trial uh, sometime in 2018, we expect, uh, but I think people also need to uh, bear in mind that Schools have a broader mission. These are not these are not professional sports leagues. The labor laws don't work terribly well in this context, uh, and the Supreme Court has consistently sustained the principle of amateurism. That is the distinction between college sports and everything else. Minor league sports do not drive nearly the interest, uh, or you know, from fan or player that uh, college sports uh, drives. Amateurism is the distinction between minor league sports and major college sports. Uh, I think that principle will be preserved. I think it needs to be to preserve college sports as we currently enjoy it and to allow the sports to work better with the missions of the universities. Well put. Does the litigation, however, take more of an active role in driving some of this change, Power Five relative to others, minor sports relative to others, Title IX relative to others, uh, especially since, as you pointed out, there is no uh, labor union with which to bargain. So the courts may be the ones that are helping to define this leverage? Well, but again, I don't know that they can really define it, and I think judges need to be careful yeah. about wandering into territory that they may not uh, fully appreciate. In professional sports, it's a very binary relationship. There is one union that represents a group of players and one league that is bargaining with that union. That is not the case in college sports. We have public universities that under state law cannot be unionized. You have private universities that could be, uh, but potentially by a multitude of unions. Uh, you don't have that unified principle that you have in sport. You also don't necessarily have uh, uh, the infrastructure there that would allow those labor discussions to happen in a way that would be effective 
for allowing these athletes who have relatively short times at those universities to play. You know, a lockout at a, at a university level could deprive somebody of the bulk of their varsity experience. So, Joe Lasessi has a, a rare ability to, according to the documents, since he's running this place, shape the law. There are very few brochures that actually talk about things other than what they're doing. You, you have uh, a, a, a real commitment to help define what the future looks like in the business. You have the leverage and the vision and ability to do that. Having said that, what does the business broadly defined look like five years from now? Well, one of the things we've certainly invested heavily in at the firm is the development of our young women lawyers, especially in our sports group. And I think what you're going to see over the next five years is that uh, current generation of women executives who are currently in their mid to late 30s who are getting to the point where they can lead teams, lead leagues, lead major sponsor uh, uh, relationships on the corporate side. Uh, and I think one of the things that's going to change dramatically in this business is the representation and influence of women. And I think that'll be a great thing doing well versus doing good, the power of sports. We've seen what it means after natural disasters, after Vegas, after Boston Strong. What do you see as the obligation of sports teams and leagues to do the right thing? And why is sports so special that will give them and us the platform to do that? Well, look, sports has always uh, trans, uh, transcended traditional political divides, uh, traditional other sort of demographic divides in this country. It's why the live experience is so vibrant. You have people from all walks of life there. Uh, I think as a result, teams have a unique connection with their community that other businesses may not. I don't know a team, I don't know a league uh, that doesn't have a very vibrant uh, community outreach program, a very uh, vibrant charity program. The causes that are supported by those charities vary from community to community based upon what's important to that community. You saw the Saints after Katrina. You saw so many of these teams really lead the resuscitation of spirit, of optimism, of hope in their communities and do good work underneath that. Uh, and I think that's just an essential part of being a community asset. So Lasessi's handled matters that were acquisition, finance, operation, equity funding for a whole bunch of NFL teams, Pac-12 Conference, ATP World Tour, NASCAR, USGA, NHL, NBA, on and on. But his perspective, again, Dan, what do you take away from the interview the most? You know, uh, as I said at the top, I think one of the most interesting parts of this is the, the issue of the baseball, hockey, and football rights coming up. TV rights coming up in 2021 and 2022. And his take that one of the FANG stocks, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, I think take Netflix out of there, but one of those stocks, uh, one of those companies is going to be, is going to acquire a major piece of a TV sports package. And to me, the global nature of that, the nonlinear nature of that, the interactive nature of that changes the value equation in a way that sports rights value equations really have to change. Uh, and, and to me, that's what, that was my big takeaway. I mean, I sat up when I heard that, and I, I, I don't sit up often when I listen to interviews. Uh, it, very, very uh, cogent analysis. Yeah, but, but and there's more to it. Remember, uh, the values of television rights has been the bedrock of naming deals, franchise negotiations, franchise values, player negotiations and labor all the time. And now... Everybody says there's a bubble. When are you going to reach it? Well, his bold prediction is that one of the fangs will come up with a large deal. And do they joint venture with the traditional networks? Do they do it on their own? He didn't have to decide that issue. I think what he validated for all of us is 2021, 22, 22 are going to be very interesting years, don't you think?
Yeah, Joe made a really interesting point about the heads-up versus heads-down equation. Are you playing or are you watching the games, right? And I think that if you look at sports rights, and as I like to say around now, like inter- interactivity is the new live, um, that's an issue where rights are expanding because revenue opportunities will expand along with them. You know, whether it's ancillary esports um, valuations, whether it's other licensing deals, that whole thing is not small. And that... that audience is exponential in some sense. So I think that the, he, he makes a great point. He doesn't specifically talk about esports, but I think the esports angle here is something that you can't walk away from uh, and that, that you have to take into account as all of this kind of economy morphs into something new. Well, and we'll continue to talk esports, obviously, down the road, but I find it also either clairvoyant or he is a trendsetter in the industry that we did this interview a little while ago. And since then, Adam Silver presides over the NBA eSport E-League draft, and he calls these players athletes and teams. 17 of them in the NBA have bought eSports teams. They're letting players play. You draft these guys, and that's heads up and heads down. So, you know, the, the bottom line is that social media has become an incredibly important way not only to cover the game, but to integrate the game as part of the, the process itself as well. Right, and it's creating long-term value. The other great point he made was that, you know, franchise values have never been higher and they're not getting any smaller. Um, You know, wealth diversification, it used to be that people would buy teams as a main business or as a plaything. And now it's clearly a diversification thing. People, you know, financial guys, very levered in the markets, will come and buy a a team because they know that long-term value, it's like a bond almost, and you've seen the big payouts. You, you generate revenue, you do okay on operating revenue, and then you have some huge payout at the end. It's a really, it's like more like a utility maybe, or more like a, a, a dividend stock. But it is a very, it is a very interesting point that he makes there too, because if those franchise values are holding up, um, that brings more investment in. It's almost, it almost becomes like a virtuous circle yeah. um, that Wall Street used to talk about. And that to me is, is fascinating. Uh, one of the things we see this week, um, I saw one piece of news that um, FIFA is looking to sell rights to one of its to, to, to its one of its smaller tournaments to a what they didn't say who but it was a Middle Eastern investment fund. Now that's a huge deal because that shows Asian money, Middle Eastern money that hadn't really they've they've bought teams but they've never stepped in in this kind of size. Are they going to come in at this kind of size and become part of the foundation as opposed to just owning franchises. That's an interesting, interesting development from my point of view. And the, the fact that it was at $25 billion um, was staggering to me. Well, and, and the other thing about Joe is that when we talk about franchise values, he's represented the NBA when they expanded to Charlotte, Toronto, Vancouver, Miami, Minnesota, Orlando. He represented the NHL when they expanded to Atlanta, Columbus, Nashville, and Minnesota, and on and on. But the point is he had the ability to provide input to the leagues to set the original value. And I guess the irony is it might have been too low because all of these expansion deals were huge when they were done as far as numbers. I remember my NBA expansion deal when I was part of the Miami Heat group, $32.5 million in the mid-1980s. That's 
outrageously high for Ted Erickson at the time, and now laughably low because of that exactly get what you, you a, said. That doesn't get you a second baseman in Milwaukee anymore, right? No. So obviously it's a big deal. He also talked about colleges and, and you know, where that's going as well. So, you know, what, what's, your, what's your other takeaway as far as the future? You know, he talked about generally the future of sports and the globalization of it. I thought it was really important to emphasize globalization as one of the key features, if not the key feature, of the growth in the future. Yeah, me too. I think the globalization part is interesting because, when you, again, you look at the Internet players and they are stateless in a sense, right? They're, they're, you know, outside of China, they can pretty much go wherever they want. I think the interesting part is that there's also, when you take into the account those type of players, you have to look at the mobile equation, you know, and you saw this week, I was just trying to fire up my ESPN app um, before we went on the air and an ad for it, my screen got taken over and the ESPN Plus screen came up. And now they want me, they have a product I can pay and I don't need to have cable service at home and I can get live sports and live shows and live, all the live, in, live stuff I want on my mobile phone. That's terrific. And, and to me, that's going to happen when you expand into places where mobile cultures are first, whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia, you're going to have to be mobily responsive. And I think part of the, when you, if one of these big firms does come in and, and make a huge rights deal, you're going to see a significant, significant mobile piece of it. Um, and that's going to be, I think, one of the big differentiators in the next three to 10 years. Uh, you know, you, you put it in perspective very well as we wrap up. Uh, there are major issues, but as you said, these are all interconnected on a global basis. And the bottom line of all of it, Joe gave us the way to connect all of these dots as a way only he could. We'll deal with him other times down the road as we continue on Keeping Score. Rick Haro, see you next time. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Our producer, Alex Cohen, associate producer, Freddie Joyner, assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, Jesse Leeds, and Jamie Swimmer, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.